Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to The District, a podcast by the Spectator World about politics and culture. I'm Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor for The Spectator, and I'm really excited to be joined by author Mark Judge, who has written a new book about his experience dealing with the sexual assault allegations against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. That book is called The Devil's Triangle, Mark Judge versus the New American Stacey. Mark, thank you so much for joining the podcast and really looking forward to digging down a little bit into your experience dealing with the fact that Christine Blasey Ford attempted to implicate you in this accusation against Brett Kavanaugh. She claims that you were actually in the room when this alleged attack occurred. At what moment did you find out that your name had been brought up and and what was your initial reaction? Well, it was in September of 2018. Nice to be here, by the way. And I got a call from Ronan Farrow, the reporter from The New Yorker. I was actually staying at a friend's house. He and I were taking care of our elderly mothers. And I got a call and he said, this is Ronan Farrow. And you've been named in a letter saying that you and Brett Kavanaugh were involved in sexual misconduct. It had not elevated to more serious stuff than it was sexual misconduct. And I knew I had entered the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, when I said, well, I don't recall anything like that. That sounds awful. Who's making the accusation? He said, I can't tell you that. I said, where did it happen? He said, allegedly. He said, I can't tell you that. I said, when did it allegedly happen? He said, in the 1980s. So I'm sitting at home And I get a call from Ronan Farrow, and he accuses me of sexual misconduct with a Supreme Court nominee, and he can't tell me who's the who's the accuser, where it happened, or when it happened. And I knew, having you know seen the movie The Lives of Others, and having a father who was a journalist who once traveled to the Soviet Union, I, I my blood went cold, and I just said, okay. The the Stasi, the American Stasi, is about to launch an attack, and it's going to be ugly. So it's got a long-winded answer, but that's how I found out. Well, and even afterwards, the only new information that was released to the public was the woman's name. Oh, we still didn't learn the the when or the where. None of that information to this date has been given to you, the accused, to Kavanaugh, or to anyone else who has been watching this all unfold. It's been years now. We still don't know. It seemed that throughout the process of, of the, the left and the media trying to prove that this event occurred, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that was brought up. And one of those things was a book that you had written about your time at Georgetown Prep and specifically, you know, parties and maybe some normal teenage debauchery that had gone on. But that was cited repeatedly as as proof that this incident could have occurred. When you look back at at that time in your life, 
and the way that it was interpreted by the media, how different was what was what was the mismatch there, I guess? Well, I mean, the 80s was a big party culture. There's no doubt about that. But I think what was going on, it was also a lot more fun than these days. But I think what was going on there is, I mean, of course, they went overboard. They made us us seem like a bunch of Vikings. And they got so many things wrong. I mean, the Washington Post did a profile of a guy talking about us as a teenager named Mike Sachs. And he's never met us. He's never laid eyes on either one of us. So it was a big party culture. I think where I came in was I've written about my alcoholism when I was younger. It was a long time ago, but it sort of started in high school. It wasn't really that bad in high school. It wasn't until college that it got really bad. And I'm pretty sure what they were doing was they were trying to tie me in with Brett through my writings and through my history, particularly in sort of the mid to late 1980s when it was really bad. The only problem with that is at that point, Brett was at Yale and I was in Washington, D.C. So we were hundreds of miles apart and never saw each other. I mean, you go to college, you really don't really see your high school friends a lot anymore. And I think they were trying to tie my period during those years in with him, which is why I think Blasey Ford's dates kept changing. Mm-hmm. People might not remember this, but she kept changing the year. At first, it was the mid-80s, then it was the early 80s, then in one letter it was the 80s, and she crossed it out and said early 80s. She changed the, the, the time period like four times. So I think they were fishing, and they found me, and they found my books, which may have been ill-advised to write when I was younger. Um, I might not do it today, but um, I do believe in free speech. So I think that that's what was going on. But the stuff about the 80s, I mean, they went overboard, and... Again, there was this puritanical, you know, the analogy I use is to the German Stasi, which was the secret police under communism. And there's just this, you know, you're not allowed to have fun. You're not allowed to listen to rock and roll. You're not allowed to read racy books. You're not allowed to do any of this stuff because we are your moral betters. Mm -hmm. And that's what was going on. And if you grew up with punk rock and William S. Burroughs and Martin Scorsese, And you were formed by those things. And Mad Magazine and National Lampoon, your whole attitude is, well, no, I have absolutely 100% the right to do those things and read those things. So it was a real, you know, puritanical thing that was sort of sent at us. And and it was absurd. I mean, it was ridiculous. You know, the left has become very, very intolerant, but, but that's not news. Yeah. Well, I mean, in your defense, writing that book about your time in the 80s, I think most people, most normal people would would remember fondly their own times of debaucherous youth and just trying to have a good time. And now the left tries to cancel people, whether it's, in your case, trying to use evidence of partying as proof of a sexual assault or, you know, people making offensive jokes online and when they're in high school and, and they have their college acceptances revoked. It seems like this is a trend that's not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. But back to the time when you had learned of these accusations, you had moved yourself to Bethany Beach, Delaware, which I'm quite familiar with. I actually vacation there every summer. So the thought of some Washington news reporter or Washington Post news reporter coming uh, to the sleepy, quiet beach town is quite funny to me. 
But you were staying there to try to get away from the media circus, and this Washington Post reporter ends up finding you and writing an article about where you were holed up. What was that experience like when that reporter found you, and, and what was your response to them? It was horrible. I mean, it was, it was you know, traumatizing is an overly or, or used phrase, but it really was horrible. I sort of knew what was going on. I mean, this, uh, this whole thing was pre-planned. I mean, the way opposition researchers and the leftists and the media work sort of hand in hand in hand, they collect all this oppo research on you and then they dump it. And so mm-hmm. you just, you freak out and you're supposed to start babbling, which I didn't do. I decided to go down to the beach because I have a friend who had a place down there and this Washington Post reporter shows up. And I told him, I said, I got nothing to hide. I'll talk to you off the record. Let's take a walk because I didn't want any photos of the house. I was in. it's not my house. And I talked to him off the record. I just said, look, I have, I have no recollection of this. I was willing to talk to Bozzi Ford from the beginning. I said, if you put me, her, and the FBI or her parents or whatever in a room together, I have nothing to hide. I'm happy to talk to her. I just hand to God and standing before Jesus have no recollection of this. So I just told him all that. And he was kind of out to get me. He was kind of using my friend's you know, friends against me, like, well, so-and-so said that you wrote this book and in this book that, you know, and, 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 you know, Sean Hannity said you were paid off, which is hilarious because I never got the check if Hannity paid me off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, it was, it was horrifying and it went on even longer than that. And, you know, it's funny because I knew better than most people, even people high up in politics, what was going on. And I remember I said to my lawyer, like, this is in my book. I said, do you have a back entrance? Because in about 10 minutes, there's going to be an army of werewolves out front. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, just wait. 10 minutes later, all these reporters show up because someone had told them I was at my lawyer's office. So I went out, I went through the back of the building and I walked right past them and they never even noticed me. I had a, had a baseball cap on. But, you know, that's how I think with the beach thing. It was horrifying, but not totally shocking because... I've been writing about the left for a long time, and I, I knew exactly what was up. It was, it was like Watchmen when Rorschach, you know, gets caught, you know, in the in the townhouse by the police. It's like I knew what was going on, and I and I said to myself, I was like, this is going to take two or three years, if not longer, to completely recover from this because this is an all-out, you know, bombing, strafing. So to answer your question, yes, it was terrifying, but I knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, you handled this incredibly well. Um, You didn't give interviews to the media. You didn't go in front of the Senate committee. The only time that you actually spoke to anyone involved in this was when you had your interview with the FBI. So what was it about the left that you had uncovered in your writings that made it clear to you what was going to happen? Because I I think a lot of people were really caught off guard and maybe naive to just how far this would be taken. Well, there's a really great movie that I mentioned before called The Lives of Others about the German Stasi. It won an Academy Award. And I've been interested in that topic since that movie came out, I think, 20 years ago. And to me, there was always a direct correlation between the tactics of the German Stasi and the left. I don't like to use Nazi metaphors. I think that's disrespectful to Jewish people. I, I think people overly use that. But the Stasi under communism, I'm comfortable with. And just studying them, I was like, you know, time after time, these aren't mistakes that get made in articles. They're purposeful. Time after time, this stuff that they talk about turns out to be true. I mean, on September 18th, two days after the Bosley Ford story broke in the Washington Post, 
President Trump put out a statement saying the FBI is corrupt and they're out to get me. This was two days after Bozzi Ford. So I'm thinking this is not good. And people have said you handled it so well. But when you are dealing with, you know, criminals like that, I mean, Michael Avenatti is in jail. He's a criminal. Right. He is a sociopathic felon. When you get to that level, it's like a friend of mine said, if you say to the Washington Post, I love you, they will report it as you love I. They will change every, they are, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, they are out to kill you. This is, this is the level we're at. They are out to kill you. And if you jump off a building, they win because that's part of the whole thing. So, and I'll just, I'll quickly add too, I'm Catholic and I grew up you know, with the movies like The Exorcist and hearing about demonology and stuff, and that kind of stuff is real. I'm not saying that reporters are demons, but it's there's a reason why Oppo Research is called the dark arts. There's yeah. a real darkness there. And when faced with all that, I just thought, any word you say is a shiv that they're going to plant right into your back. And I, I just tried to hold on. I just tried to hold on for dear life. Well, I definitely agree with you. There was some kind of demonic or satanic influence behind this. I, I believe in that wholeheartedly too. So you go in for this FBI interview and it's true at the time, there was a lot of, of commentary on the right about how the FBI had been corrupted and was out to get Trump and had been filled with these bad influences and these bad apples who were really perverting justice. So even speaking to the FBI, as opposed to this political Senate committee, you must have been pretty terrified about how they were going to use the information that you gave to them. Oh, I, I said they they can F me over 10 ways to Sunday and I could do nothing about it. And it's really, I mean, we sort of live in a post-honor culture. It's like uh, we no longer live in an honor culture. And when they would leak your interview before you get to your car, I mean, a friend of mine, a high school friend of mine was interviewed by them also. And he went in there and he said, you know, I was told this wasn't going to leak. And by the time I got home to dinner, it had leaked. It was on CNN. And the agent said, well, that's just the world we live in today. Well, BS. That's the, that is that is not an honorable way to work. So, yes, I was terrified because I thought they can completely, you know, they can January 6th me and, right. and, and that'll be it. So I just thought, you know, I had my lawyer with me and I said, just tell the truth. Just, you can't go wrong telling the truth. And I told him, I said, I'm willing to talk to her at any time, in any place with anybody she wants to bring with me. I just have no recollection of this. And then I found out later that a friend of hers had been doing oppo research on us. It was in the on book the New York Times published about us. And if you want to get into that, that's when I began to really figure out what was going on. When I found out that Bozzi Ford was using a an oppa researcher, maybe not a professional one, but a friend of hers. It's in a book the New York Times published. And that's when I thought, okay, this is not what it seems. Yeah, let's get into that, actually, because I've, I'm not familiar with this in terms of her friend doing opposition research. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I was not going to write a book or anything. I just wanted to survive and live my life and go skateboarding and all their stuff. But the New York Times, Kate Kelly and Robin Pogrebin published this book called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm reading it just to see what's in it. And I come across this paragraph and it says, it's, it's produced verbatim in my book, but it says Keith Kogler, who was a friend of Bozzy Ford's and a lawyer, spent the summer of 2018 
researching Mark Judge's writings and videos. I mean, I used to photograph models and make extra money doing that. And so he was looking into that stuff. And, and I think the direct quote is by the end of the summer, he knew more about Georgetown Prep and its parties and social scene than he ever thought he wanted to. And when I came across that passage, I thought, wait a minute, wait one minute. At one point, she had said, I wanted to get in touch with Mark Judge, but I wasn't sure how, even though I'm all over social media. And now I'm reading that this guy who was actually at the hearings was doing oppo for her. Now, now the excerpt from the book is produced verbatim in my book. So I just quote the New York Times reporters. I don't make any claims beyond what they themselves say. Right. And I just thought, well, wait a minute. If this guy's been <laughs> tracking my work all summer, you know, and he's, you know, and they're in touch with the media and they're in touch with SU and the politicians, that's the devil's triangle. Those are the three things, the leftist politicians, the media, and the oppo researchers. Mm -hmm. That's the devil's triangle. So, I, I mean, you're a reporter, so you tell me. I think that's a pretty big deal to, to find something like that. I mean, really. That's a huge deal. And if I remember correctly as well, there was reporting that Blasey Ford herself or someone closer to her was actually making phone calls ahead of her taking the accusation to Feinstein's office to talk to friends who I guess were around during that time period to see if they could back up her story. Is that right? I don't know about that. I do know that she was not a reluctant witness. This crap about her being a reluctant witness Ryan Grimm, who's not a conservative, wrote about this in his book. She asked Feinstein to keep it private between them until they got a chance to talk. That doesn't mean she wasn't going public. And Ryan Lovelace, who's a really good reporter, wrote a book about this. And he said, you know, she was talking to everybody. She was demanding that the media return her emails and phone calls. Right. This garbage about this reluctant little church mouse is just, it's crap. So, but of course, they're, one of the reasons I wrote this book is they're not going to report that. Just like, you know, I mean, they're, you know, the Washington Post did a profile of a guy named Mike Sachs who was talking about how wild me and Brett were in high school. Well, Mike Sachs, who is a writer, has never laid eyes on me or Brett Kavanaugh. Not mm -hmm. once. He never, he didn't know any of our friends in high school. And here he is in the Washington Post talking about us. When these guys got drunk, all bets were off. This, this, this idiot has never laid eyes on me. Right. I mean, that's, you know, this was the, the bottom. And, you know, part of the book is just keeping the receipts and just saying you're not going to memory hold this. You know, you guys should be embarrassed by this, but they won't be. The book's description also mentions that you were the target of a honey trap. I'd love to hear that story if you're willing to share it. Yes. Now, again, I, I don't know for sure, 100 percent, but you tell me. So I used to go swing dancing at this place every weekend. I just I like to swing dance. and. And it's a routine. Like, people know I go there and everything. And I'm driving home at, like, 11.30 or 12 one night afterwards. And this, like, gorgeous 17-year-old blonde girl literally comes running out into the road, waving her arms to stop my car. Like, she runs into the road, so I'll stop. And she's with a guy who's about her own age. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I roll down the window. And uh, I think this is in Maryland. And she says, we got stranded at a party. Can you give us a ride back home? And I said, well, where do you live? And she said, D.C. And I, my spidey sense went off. I, whatever spidey sense I have was like, something's weird about this. I was a kid in the 1970s getting stranded at a party then, maybe. 
But in 2018, with cell phones, and as a friend of mine who's in law enforcement, who was not involved in this, but he's in law enforcement, said, you know, Mark, gorgeous 17, 18-year-old girls don't need to beg for rides home for parties from 55-year-old men <laughs> in the middle of the night. I mean, come on, Amber. And so I said, something's off about this. And I just said, sorry, and I took off. And again, I have a friend in law enforcement. I have a friend who's a lawyer. And I was like, I can't prove anything, but damn, this is weird. This is weird because it was in August 2018. It was right before all this stuff broke. And I said, well, how would, what do you think was going on? And my friend said, it's easy. You're crossing state lines. They asked for you for a ride back to D.C. Not a lot of young teenagers out in the suburbs of Maryland like live in D.C. and late at night need rides home. So you're crossing state lines. Uh, she yells rape. He takes a picture with his phone and you're toast. And, and this is right before the Kavanaugh thing. Now, I admit this might be a little too Oliver Stone. I concede that. I'm a journalist. I don't have hard or proof of anything. But the timing, the way it happened, the fact that this beautiful young lady was asking me for a ride home and she had a guy with her who could be a witness. You tell me, Amber, am I crazy or is that weird? I think at the very least, it's it's definitely weird. I agree with you on that. And I think it was very wise for you to decline that young woman a ride. Well, late August 2018? I mean, come on, late August 2018. Very strange. I, uh, I mean, at least one of them had to have had a phone on that they could have used to call an Uber or a Lyft. They were looking at their phones while, while they were talking to me. I was like, you don't have parents or uncles or siblings? Or This was weird, man. Very bizarre. Weird. Very bizarre. I, it, when, uh, when you look at the totality of, of a lot of the things that were reported by the media in regards to the Kavanaugh accusation, I got this overwhelming sense that the left and the media were really focused on the identity of you and Kavanaugh, meaning you're white men, you, you know, lean on the right side of the political spectrum, you're successful. And it was almost this, this feeling, this tone of resentment. And I wonder if you could speak to how much you think that played into this really aggressive coverage, just the fact that you're almost this hated class now by the elite journalists and left-wing political uh, personas. Yeah, well, it is resentment. I mean, resentment is what drives a lot of the politics. And it's funny, as Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post wrote a book about us, and she actually pointed out that everyone was calling us rich and entitled. Well, we weren't rich. We were not poor. Back in the 70s and 80s, I think we were more upper middle class. And we get we got looked down on by some of the other schools because they thought we were like, jocks and beer drinkers and not really that rich. And as we were not poor, I'm not saying that. And as Ruth Marcus put it, you know, upper middle class, you know, Catholic guys, a lot of Irish guys in our class and everything. So that whole thing wasn't entirely accurate. But that just gets to the identity politics of, you know, people who are a certain type are evil and there's nothing they could do to redeem themselves. And it's what the great Sociologist James Pearson calls punitive liberalism, like liberalism that has to punish um, other people. And mm -hmm. it's not the liberalism of John F. Kennedy. And it's unfortunate because it's real and the desire is just to punish people to the point where they're, you know, taking out our yearbook and, you know, Stephanie rules getting the papers on TV because, oh, my God, they're referring to girls. And, oh, God, I mean, it's just ridiculous. But behind it is, you know, these people need to be punished. Yeah. What 
effect did this have on your life? It's been, you know, four years now, but you said you knew at the onset that this would take at least two to three years to recover from. What was that recovery period like? Well, at first, I didn't think I was going to survive it. Like when I was down at the beach and there were people banging on my door at three o'clock in the morning, I slipped out the back of the beach house and I went swimming, put on my surf trunks and went out swimming. And I was just floating on my back out there. And, you know, and, and I hate the poor me. I'm a victim of stuff. But I had been through cancer like 10 years before. And I was just floating on my back and looking up at the sky, just thinking, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> There's no way to survive this. So I did know it was going to take several years, but, you know, and also I'm, you know, there is trauma and PTSD. I know a lot of people claim that, and I know soldiers who really suffer from that, so I don't want to compare myself to people who have really endured terrible things. But I'd be lying if I said there wasn't an element of that there. I mean, I, you know, I I love dogs, and I almost killed this dog with my skateboard like a week after that whole thing happened, but... The neighbor was nice and she knew who I was, so she forgave me, even though he was uh, barking at me. But, um, but yeah, it was just, you know, almost the way it's depicted in movies where you're exploding at people and you're paranoid and all this other stuff. But it does get better. And being sober all these years, I have really good tools. And knowing about spiritual warfare, being Catholic, I know what it can take out of you. Mm-hmm. The financial hit was really bad, which is why I hope this book sells, because that was really, really awful. I mean, I was hoping, you know, there were outlets like The Stream and American Greatness and these other places that I wrote for, and I managed to get by on that a little bit. But, you know, I washed dishes. I worked at Home Depot, which I'm happy to do. You learn a lot as a journalist at those jobs. But there were times when it was just like... You know, uh, people have forgotten me. I'm not going to survive this. I just, uh, I can't survive this. So it's really been like a day at a time type thing and, and just getting better. I mean, you know, I believe in God and, and good people in, you know, 12 step programs and stuff like that can really, I mean, I've seen people near death who have turned around in those places, in those rooms. So, yeah. but again, like when certain names came up, like come up, like, I saw Sheldon Whitehouse was a politics and prose the other night. And I mean, this guy is a, is a combination of Sylvester the Cat and Torquemada. Okay. And when I see this guy on TV, it's like, oh my God, it's, they're, they're just horrible human beings. So, but, you know, like I say in the book, I enjoy skateboarding. I like the ocean and stuff and stuff like that is really good for it. And plus I have really good friends. I have friends from Georgetown Prep. I got to quickly tell you, I have this really funny friend who I did the Unknown Hoya with, our underground high school newspaper. And when the Unknown Hoya was in the news and the senators were talking about it, and there was an article in the Post about it, oh, the kegs, the parties, the girls, this underground newspaper, he calls me up and he goes, hey, Mark. I go, yeah. And he goes, it's, and he said his name. I said, I, yeah, what's up? And he goes, is it too late to print a retraction? <laughs> <laughs> No, not at all. I I think that's really important for people to hear. You're talking about Sheldon Whitehouse and one other bad guy I'd be remiss not to ask you about is this this person by the name of Bernie Ward. 
He was a sex ed teacher at Georgetown Prep. Correct me if I'm, I'm getting that wrong, but he played an interesting role in all of this. And I'll just let you tee off on this one because it's the story is pretty unbelievable to hear it. Yes. Well, this guy taught like human sexuality when I was at Georgetown Prep, extremely left wing, like no John Paul II theology of the body. We were getting Betty Friedan and I won't get into the details, but so I largely forgot about him. So he had moved to San Francisco and he became Bernie Ward, the lion of the left. He had a very popular left wing radio show. He was like compared to Rush Limbaugh and he had a really popular show. So when all this all this stuff is going on, he pops up in the media being interviewed, I think, by the Washington Post. And he's like, the drinking was unbelievable. And these guys and their girls and everything, he, you know, he's exaggerating a lot, too. And I used to try to get through to them. Da, 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 da. And it, in passing, one little line in passing, the Washington Post article says, you know, Ward, who incidentally spent seven years in a correctional facility for sending child pornography over the, the Internet. Remembers oh Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh well. <laughs> and, I mean, we knew all that. Like, our whole class knew that he went away for seven years. And I just thought, what's beyond hypocrisy? What's a couple of galaxies past hypocrisy? And I, I, it's in my book, and I wrote a piece about it for the stream where, where I said, okay, let me get this straight. And, and the judge at his sentencing said, this man trafficked in the most degrading, horrible things of, that, can be, that are imaginable involving children. And I said, this guy's out there talking about us drinking beer and dating girls our own age. And he was in prison for seven years and lost his radio show because he's sending child pornography. I mean, and it was so funny because at the end of the article, they said, we tried to follow up again with Ward, but his wife answered the door and (laughs) said, he's not going to answer any more questions because he thinks he made a mistake. What was your first clue, Mr. (laughs) Ward? That is unbelievable. Uh, one last yeah. question for you: when when you decided to write this book and and air all of this all of this out and and retell the whole story, were you at all worried that a lot of these you know feelings from those couple of years immediately following would would come back up that people would start questioning you again? I mean, ultimately, what was what was the the pro of writing the book that outweighed the potential cons? I agree with everything you said, and a lot of it was just anger. A lot of it was just like stuff like the Bernie Ward stuff. Yeah. Stuff like the APA research stuff. And I just thought, you know, yes, this could cause some blowback, and you don't really want to go back there. But I truly believe we are up against the American equivalent of the German Stasi under communism. And I think they are a lethal threat, and I think they will do this to anybody. I mean, if they did this to me, they'll do this to anybody. And I just thought, do you want to be remembered the rest of your life as nobody knows what this guy said about anything and he just kind of disappeared? Or, you know, it's like those guys in that movie 300. It's like the Spartans. Do you, do you, do you stay at home and wait for the Persians to invade your city or do you go to the hot gates? You might die there, but you might spurn others to action. And again, I think a lot of the rhetoric of, oh, they're Nazis, da, 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 da. That's too much for me, for reasons that I explained. But I do think we're dealing with something very similar to the Stasi. And, you know, God forbid it should happen to someone else. And I think that and just being angry, just being like, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're interviewing people who have never laid eyes on me and Brett Kavanaugh. And they're talking about us. And, you know, I grew up in kind of an honor culture, an Irish Catholic honor culture, Catholic culture. And it's like, well, no, somebody 
craps on your name, you go over to their front door and you bang on their front door. And you say, no, you're not getting away with this. So, you know, that's my position. And as Clint Hillier said, I hope he sells a million copies. That will help deal with the pain if that happens. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I know Quinn well, so I, I'm glad to hear that he's helping you out, too. I think it's a very inspiring story. I hope everyone will go out and buy this book. It's it's super important, not just to set the record straight on, on what happened with these Kavanaugh hearings and, and to you, but also what this could potentially mean for everyone else who could fall in the crosshairs of the left and the media. It's the Devil's Triangle Mark Judge versus the New American Stasi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to talk to you, Amber. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com. <laughs>